zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. I'm Richard Wells. And I'm Carl Lucas. And today we're discussing The Boogans, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by David O'Malley and Jim Kauf, based on a story by Thomas C. Chapman and O'Malley, directed by James L. Conway, and released by Jensen Farley Pictures. Our guest tonight, as you just heard, is our good friend Carl Lucas, who we met through his lovely wife working with Jesse on TNT's Leverage. Mr. Lucas is a writer, producer, and director of feature films. Recently, he wrote and produced drug trip thriller The Wave, starring Justin Long, Tommy Flanagan, and Donald Faison, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, great. That makes this a lot less awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Good. You just like log out right then. Well, great to be here. By the way, Drug Trip Thriller is such a better name for the movie. I'm going to try to get it changed to that. Just Drug Trip Thriller. All right. It feels like everybody's going to know exactly what the movie's about then. Yeah. I believe you recently wrapped production on The Old Way, starring Nicolas Cage and Clint Howard. Yeah. Which you both wrote and produced. Yeah, um, that we're looking at uh, a release late this year, um, hopefully uh, before Christmas. Is, okay, uh, awesome. And we should be we'll, we'll be in theaters, so um, we're kind of excited about that. Well, um, we will be too to go see it for sure. And wide wide release? Are you expecting a lot of theaters? Uh, you know, I mean, it's still it's still a pretty indie film, so I'm not for sure for sure. Um, I don't know how much I can actually say. Sure, in the podcast, yeah, that's fair. So. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, quite a few. And if IMDb is to be trusted, which it often isn't, I see you are set to write and direct your next title, Prism Lake. Is that correct? That's what we're working on. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the, the dream and the hope is to um, put up uh, the, the the next in what I, what I'm calling my interdimensional trilogy. I've uh, the the movies are the Wave and then Prism Lake, and then there's a uh, third film uh, that we're hoping to kind of. Uh, start to put on the boards as soon as we get prism lake done and that one's called um shotgun suicide and then and then no more weird wacky interdimensional nonsense for me everything's straightforward what? from then on <laughs> i mean it's like you hit a point where like you know you're you're running out of things that haven't already been said so it's like you know with with the wave we were trying to you know play with tropes that people were familiar with so you know they would you know we'd have that mass market appeal but at the same time we were trying to uh you know just play with some fun ideas you know like a a fixed a fixed loop time travel movie isn't something that i've really seen before it's like usually people go back in time to try to fix the past but the idea to me is that if you can actually travel in time um that can't happen so that means that everything has already happened because if you can just step from this point to someplace in the future and or vice versa like there's nothing you can do to actually change that those those things. So playing with a fixed loop, but still a time travel movie where it's like he was always 
always there, <laughs> which is something we were kind of having fun with. We've had many time travel arguments on this podcast um, <laughs> when we come to movies like The Final Countdown. Yeah, uh, was kind of a mess for us. <laughs> oh man, I remember that as a kid though. That was yeah, that was a, that was fun. <laughs> but it has a lot of it introduces a lot of paradoxes that really bothered me. <laughs> they bothered other people on the show less, but um, yeah. So I recommend that episode if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. Oh, yeah. No, I haven't. I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I will definitely dig in for that one because I actually remember that from when I was a kid. Uh, oh, I, I didn't ask this before. Uh, how are we? Do we swear? Uh, I feel like we swear. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah this is. Go for it. Please do. Yeah, okay. We're fine. All right. Um, I'm going to get right into the making of here. The first draft of the film was entitled The Boogeyman, but Uli Lamel laid claim to the title for his 1980 film, which we've already covered on the show in episode 141. Screenwriter O'Malley offered The Boogans, a made-up word, as a substitute title because it was as close to The Boogeyman as he could get without being sued. I feel like they should have gone a completely different direction with the title because even when... Boogans is just weird. But even Boogeyman, I don't even think fits this this creature type yeah, film. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I to me, like I don't, I don't think they actually ever named the creature in the film. So, like to me, the, the monster is just the boogin, right. uh, or the boogin, since there's more than one. So that that always, as a kid, that that didn't steer me away at all. I was like, yeah, that's that's a name for a monster I've never heard of before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe. But again, that, that's my whole my whole background. The whole reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I got so excited that I was able to find a um, a DVD of this movie because <laughs> it had been out of print and gone forever. And as a kid, I'd seen the trailer so many times on um, on pay per view, but or, or the pay TV that my parents were stealing. Uh, <laughs> but I never actually got to see the movie. Uh, and you know, I was that sci-fi horror kid who just absolutely obsessed over all of the horror films that I was never allowed to watch. Right. You know, and slowly I've been tracking them down. You actually just reminded me of one. I forgot the boogeyman. I need to go and see that. Oh yeah. It's a mess, but check it out. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not afraid of a mess. <laughs> when we, uh, when we were still debating whether or not we were going to do literally every feature film released in the eighties, or if we were going to, uh, pick and choose and I went and watched a bunch of trailers and I, I do remember watching the trailer for this movie obviously before I had seen it or heard of it Yeah, and I was excited for this one yeah no there's some great imagery here for sure. Well, and, and I think the trailer in particular is actually pretty enticing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's well shot. The trailers uh, trailers put together really fun, and it's a monster movie from the '80s, which like to me presses a lot of buttons. Like, right, studio yeah. horror. I, I'm a big fan of. Uh, this film was shot mostly in Park City, Utah, and made use of only one creature prop for budgetary reasons. The sound they make was supposedly created by recording a dog and cat fighting and then playing the sound backwards. <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe that. <laughs> but I, I can't disprove it. I think we I think we can. Well, you could take the sound and reverse it and <laughs> yeah. see how it yeah. sounds. <laughs> if it doesn't sound like a dog and a cat fighting, somebody's making things up. This was the first R-rated release for distributor Sun Classic Pictures, who became Taft International who I believe are now a Paramount property, which is why it got the Blu-ray release recently. There's a Blu-ray? There is a Blu-ray, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm fine without it. <laughs> that opening logo is 100% the Hanna-Barbera logo. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> I was just like, wait a minute. I've seen that like a hundred times. 
Producer Charles Sellier wrote the novelization based on the film, and it is supposedly an improvement, but I couldn't locate a copy in time for the review. Oh, we gotta so find that. Look for the Boogans novelization. It's just called The Boogans. I've seen the art. It's the same poster art. I'm, I'm gonna go find it. If I can find that weird karate book that has um, photos of um, Stevie Nicks uh, demonstrating karate poses because... <laughs> Her security guard decided he wanted to make a karate book, and she was like, yeah, man, let's do that. And, like, she backed him <laughs> up by posing for some of the uh, – so if I can find that book, I, I'm going to find the novelization of the book. And stuff, do it, worry. and let us know what you think of it once you've read it. <laughs> Found it. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Uh, almost instantly. That's great. Okay. Anyway, let's continue. We open the film with the Paramount logo, because eventually they wound up with all the Taft International Jensen Farley film rights. The film begins with a montage of sepia tone photos and old-fashioned newspaper headlines. The Silver City Gazette tells the story of their town under a plaintive harmonica tune. As you might have guessed from the name, silver was discovered in the mountains here. One headline declares it the biggest vein in history. More headlines describe an incoming safety inspector, and then a collapse that traps 27 miners. Rescue efforts are fruitless, but according to one headline, a survivor testifies to having been attacked underground. The final headline reads simply, Mine Closed. We dissolve from the sepia tone photographs to present day in full color, and a sledgehammer breaks the lock off the doors to the mine. Two older men, Brian and Dan, played by John Crawford and Med Flory, open the doors as two younger men behind them step out of a pickup truck. The young guys carry a generator to the mouth of the mine to plug in the installed lighting system which apparently is still compatible with this modern-day generator 70 years later. <laughs> I mean, if that's, if that's your problem with that scene, I mean, the lights come on. That should really be your problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> the impressive part. Well, light bulbs back in the day lasted centuries for some reason. It, it, to me, it's, it's no different from, like, opening up the door to the ancient tomb and there's still lit torches on the right. walls. Right, yeah, exactly. There's still living snakes writhing around. Well, that's because the, the, you set the nest off and it lights the... Um... The nest the, cam. The tomb. <laughs> like, Alexa, light the torches. Isn't the, isn't it a thing that there is a, a light bulb that Edison made that's like still there's a light bulb at a firehouse in San Francisco that's been on for like 120 years, yeah, or something like that with the same filament because they used to make the filament super thick before, and now they want to make money, so they want light they bulbs want to, to not last out. as long. So <laughs> planned planned obsolescence. Or, exactly. Yeah. While they drag the generator around, one of the guys, Roger, complains he hasn't been laid in 11 days, and the other one asks if that's all he can think about. All four men flick on their radios, and Dan explains the rules moving forward. No fucking around. Watch your step and keep track of your buddies. One of the older guys, Brian, stays outside while the rest of them check the mine for rotten supports. Mark and Roger are advised to follow Dan at a distance of 15 feet, as he taps on each beam with a hammer to see how sturdy they are. When he taps the first one, a shower of dirt and debris pours down from the ceiling, but this is apparently acceptable. That one's all right. That one's all right. That one's all right. The next beam doesn't pass Dan's test, so he strikes it with a piece of chalk. When he taps on the third beam, a big chunk of rock drops out of the ceiling between Dan and the young guys. You smell anything? No, no why? I just shit my pants. The score turns ominous and outside the camera tilts up from the mouth of the mine to all of the wooden beams above it. Roger breaks it to Mark that his girlfriend Jessica is bringing a date for him. Mark is not excited about a blind date, but Roger says she's cute. No, no, you're, you're gonna like Trish. Really? 
Outside the cave, Brian starts the generator and the lights come on. <laughs> Amazingly. Brian and Ed come to a blocked up wall in the cave and plug a single stick of dynamite into a small crevice. They decide how much fuse to use based on how much work it will be to escape. What do you say, you wanna run or you wanna walk? Oh hell, let's walk. <laughs> the fuse seems to burn faster than they expected, so they upgrade their walk to a jog, but I probably would run no matter how long <laughs> yeah, this fuse was. I was gonna say, <laughs> I don't think there's a fuse long enough for me not to just run out of a mine yeah. that's about to explode. I wouldn't even light it. I would just run. And I, and I just want to say, like, sitting here for this, like, I'm, I'm waiting for Patrick to tell me to, to, to roll for perception or initiative. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, I am the dungeon master of this. <laughs> Outside, Roger is still trying to convince Mark that Trish is hot. She's got perfect breasts. Oh, give me a break. Perfect breasts. I'm telling you, I saw them. You saw them, both of them? Yes. We were all in a hot tub together. We cut to an old man standing on the sidelines watching over them as they work. He seems disturbed by what they're doing. Their work done for the day, the young guys hop in a pickup truck and head out to their rental place to wait for the girls. Before we go on, we should talk about the Harbinger for a second because that is like a tr an 80s trope. Yes. That you almost couldn't make a horror film without him. Like the guy who is there to tell everybody, don't do what you're doing. Yeah. That's where the monster lives. You know, and it's a, it's a trope that lived. Going to Camp Blood, ain't you? Oh, it is an eyeball of my friend. You know, like there's a... I think it's at least three of three or four of the uh, Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yeah, like the 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 way the script is structured. Um, at this point, I'm 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 like just falling in with the beats. I really liked the way it introduced the the the, the main characters without even giving you a clue that they're the main characters. Right. Yes. Is, yeah. It, it, an interesting piece. I don't know when we're supposed to talk about that, so just jump it in anytime. We see a woman we'll come to know as Martha Chapman driving a station wagon late at night. She veers off the road to avoid a deer and crashes her car in a ditch in the snow. She tries to back it out, but the wheels are just spinning, so she locks it and walks down the road. Do you recall the last time we had a car go off the road in the snow? Get stuck in the snow? In the snow. Car goes off the road. Well, maybe it didn't snow. get stuck. It definitely went off the, the road in the snow. Uh, I'm gonna go with a change line. Yeah. Was it really that far back? Well, I that's guess the it last one been. I remember. I, mean, <laughs> so I was gonna guess the change line. Yes. <laughs> were was, you really? I was like you running in my won. head. And I was like, I see you guys are in the middle of 1981. <laughs> I was like trying to think what movies. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Was gonna be my guess. Yeah. Well, Jean Marsh was the. Yeah, Jean yeah, Marsh was the mom, and, and she gets hit movie. by a truck because right. they're stuck on the side of the road. And because of that movie, I'm sitting here thinking that something horrible is about to happen to this woman who just got stuck on the side of the road. Well, you weren't wrong. Well. Yeah, but I was expecting it to happen on the side of the road, yeah. not all the way back in the house. Yeah. She eventually makes it to a cabin off the road and moves inside. She has the keys, so this must be her place. Inside, it's dark and empty. She calls her husband on a phone to announce that she has planned to prep the rental property for Roger and Mark by warming it up, but on the way, she crashed her car. She tells him she'll have to stay here the night, and maybe she can call a tow in the morning. The same old man who disapproved of blasting the mine pulls up in front of Martha's rental property, climbs out of his car, and just stares at the house. <laughs> then he walks up to the windows and watches her move around inside for a while. Worst harbinger ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like thinking back at this moment towards after you get through the rest of the film. Why is he bothering with her? Why this house? Yeah, I don't know. Why Why not any other house? Maybe he figured out their travel plans and knew where those guys were going to go after. Well, he might well, know. I mean, oh, 
I was going to say, yeah, Richard, I think you're on, like, he knows where the tunnel yeah. ends. Yeah, but, but then he says the tunnel yet. leads to every house Ta- in town. Yeah, they say that there's tunnels all over underneath the town. So yeah. I was like, why is he here? But maybe that's the closest one. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. He's checking up on each of them tonight. <laughs> yeah, we just didn't see him staring into every house in town yeah. <laughs> one by one. Well, and, and sorry to, to double back on something real quick. They went into the mine to set off some dynamite. The dynamite blows up and they go, well, we're done for the day. Yeah, <laughs> was like, yeah You're just even... one blast. It's like, enough. don't you want to even see what the result of the blast was? Nah, nah, <laughs> we're good. That's tomorrow's problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, but I mean, let's talk about that. Okay, we just blew up some dynamite. We're in an unstable environment. Let's give it a few hours to like, Oh, that's true. Fall apart before we go wandering back in. 12 hours later, it's still there. I feel a little better walking in. I get that. It doesn't feel like they're waiting 12 hours between every explosion, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they are. We get paid by the hour. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta suspend that disbelief, guys. Right? Yeah, <laughs> any way you can. <laughs> In the basement, Martha lights the furnace and swings her flashlight around to inspect the place. When she disappears back upstairs, we see the POV of a creature moving around on the basement floor. We see her reading a book in bed later. She thinks she hears an intruder and begins exploring the house, even collecting a knife from the kitchen. I probably wouldn't do this. <laughs> I really love the pov shots in this movie the fish islands yeah, yeah like i think i mean i know that there's quite a few monster movies that that do that before this uh, so it's not it's not like it's unique to this movie but i just i i feel like they're actually suspenseful here for me sure i don't i have no idea what this is yeah and we don't see it for a while <laughs> Well, I mean, that was like Jaws taught, you know, like Jaws, that, that horror movie, they're like, we don't have the money to make the shark look as good as we want it to look, but they managed to pull all the tension from just tons of POV. We don't really see the shark until, you know, he's you know, that, that famous chum scene where he's throwing the, yeah. the stuff in. And like, I think a lot of low budget films watched, you know, what worked in Jaws and realized, oh, if we bring our monster out too early, people are going to yep. find it hilarious, especially in a low budget, you know, yeah. horror film. So, you know, this, this was actually, I'm going to, I'm going to give the director props. It was a smart choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, honestly, I feel like some of the best filmmaking comes when you're given a box, you know, it's like you, you have to work with very limited resources. You, you get some really creative, great stuff out of it. Just as she reaches the front door, she spins around frightened, and we cut to the perspective of something on the floor approaching her as she screams into camera. Always out of frame, it grabs her by the legs and drags her around, eventually tugging her through a door and down to the basement. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an unseen monster drag away a half-naked woman to the basement? When did y'all start? Y'all started in 1980? Mm-hmm. It was very recently, yeah, and there I'm... was a clue in the question. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the An name. unseen monster. Oh. No. <laughs> it was the unseen. The unseen, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, a tow truck is pulling her car out of the ditch. There's a cop here calling in the plate because they can't find an owner. We get a few more ominous establishing shots of the mine and one of those supernatural twinkles to let us know everything is not right here. Hang on, before we go any further, I can't let Patrick's um, delighted um, single laugh for his joke that nobody else laughed at. Oh, uh, I, that... I add laughter. <laughs> I sweeten everything. No, no, no. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll just kind of mix all of our laugh track in together. That's, yes. That's, that'll work out well. I think some of the best moments on the podcast is when 
Patrick's jokes don't get any laughs. That's true. <laughs> oh, they they got a laugh. <laughs> was just That's own. what I'm here for. Well, we we leave opportunities for the the audience to feel like they're participating. Right. It, they, they're oh. giving you a condolence laugh. Yes. Yeah. Deep in the mine, the same four guys are following a map through the caverns when they reach a three-way fork. The map only calls for two tunnels. Well, Brian, it's up to you. You can keep the luggage and the cookware, or you could trade it for what's in tunnel number one, tunnel number two, or tunnel number three. This way. He chooses three. It's like the worst possible Monty Hall game. Yeah, because they don't say, wrong, close that door, and well, no, pick like, one from the other. One of the doors could lead to like certain death. That's true. <laughs> I mean, they all technically did at one point. I mean, are, are they certain death? <laughs> <laughs> You don't, you don't have the two guys outside saying one of us always lies and one of us always tells the truth. Yeah, that's different. How will you escape my dungeon? They're only a few feet down into tunnel number three when they come across the remnants of a rock slide blocking the tunnel and they get to work dismantling it. We cut to Trish and Jessica driving a yellow Volkswagen bug to the rental house to meet Mark and Roger. The car is evidently nicknamed Molly and Jessica pleads with it to survive the trip. Do you guys recall the last time we saw people driving a yellow Volkswagen bug through Colorado snow? To a rental property? <laughs> I guess you could call it a rental property, maybe. I mean, it's the wrong year. The Shining? The oh, Shining. Yeah. Uh, sorry, my, my, I was going to say, um, oh, goddammit, Footloose. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trish seems to be having trouble as navigator and quickly loses the path. Jessica parks and opens the door to let her dog Tiger pee, just as Trish figures out where they are, and the dog is quickly lost in the snow. Sometime later... Okay, I, I, we got to throw a trigger warning in here, guys, everybody listening to the podcast. The dog doesn't make it to the end. <laughs> so throw it at, That's true. <laughs> we, should, we should specify here. Which I think makes all of the stuff that is about to happen here, like, that much worse. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff well, with the dog. I, I have a yeah no I have a whole lot to talk about the dog because the whole thing that he did with the dog is actually really fascinating that I've never seen any other director in a horror movie do with a dog with the exception of maybe Wes Craven's uh, uh, Hills of Eyes Part Two but we'll 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 get to that a little bit later but like there's there's this great website called Does the Dog Die uh, that if anybody is ever triggered by dog death they should you know definitely check it out whenever they're watching any movie and suddenly see a dog in it. It, it, it just, I, I, I know a lot of people that have like just that has ruined their movie experience because the, the film fails to take in consideration. That reminds me of when uh, Marley and me came out mm -hmm. and like opening week, it was on, it opened on Christmas. And so people went around to every billboard in Los Angeles and spray painted the dog dies on the billboards <laughs> so that people wouldn't go see it with their kids oh, on Christmas. Yes. Oh my God! That's, thank God. Well, <laughs> that's, and then there's that good looking uh, out, LA. <laughs> that uh, Tatum Channing movie that just came out where they in the trailer oh, with said the dog. The dog doesn't die. Oh at yeah, the, end of the trailer. <laughs> in theaters everywhere, February 18th. Don't worry, the dog doesn't die. With the PG-13. That website that does the dog die. Uh, my niece checks that website constantly before I show her any movies. Like I was like, oh, I have this great movie I want to show you. And she goes, hold on. <laughs> What's it called? Does, I does it tangentially it like cover other things like oh, yeah. other pets, cats, things? It, yeah. it, okay. it has like, you know, is there, is there like sexual assault? Does, is there okay. like drug overdose? Is there people with cancer? Like it covers like a wide variety. Like of I won't boxes. watch a movie with a bird unless it dies. <laughs> 
but that's just me and <laughs> birds, birds aren't real right that's true um but but the thing is is like you know for me it doesn't mean i won't watch the movie but it's nice to be like when i'm watching a film and you put a, a an actor or a character or whatever uh in, in danger you know i understand the part of the thrill is that character could die however um when it's the dog you know generally the dog had no choice of being there right <laughs> and yeah like, uh, and it's that for whatever reason that compartmentalization gets harder and you get it just it stresses you out if, if you know <laughs> if, especially if you're in the middle of you know morning uh right right, right. or something along those lines yeah so it's like just being able to be ready for it and kind of you know and, and understand oh this is gonna happen don't let yourself get don't fall in love with tiger yet well tiger makes it really hard to fall in love with yeah that's true (laughs) it seems like at the beginning of the movie nobody is in love with tiger already like they honestly seem to hate this dog yeah oh but that dog does a lot of work to make you hate it yeah that's true Uh, like so that, that that's the part that i actually found really interesting is that like you've got a lot of we've got our group of protagonists and the dog is literally one of them you know normally the dog is somebody's pet that they bring along and like it's going to bark and run away and you know somebody's going to be heartbroken about it but this dog is like it's literally it it might as well have lines you can take everything that happens to that dog and put it in a a, a co-ed wrapped in a towel who just got out of the shower and it's an entire character <laughs> complete. Yeah. Like yeah. all the, all, all the people equal parts hate it and love it. You know, yeah. like, like you would any of your regular friends. Um, it, it is actually really fascinating how much agency he gives the dog in this film <laughs> <laughs> to make good and bad choices. And it, and it fulfills that neat, unique role. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's the, it's the one running up the stairs when you're like, why are you doing that? Right. Yeah. Cause I'm a dog. As I, I don't know where I'm going to go. <laughs> like, and it's um, its concern for its friends matches versus its own uh, uh, survival instincts. Yeah, you know, matches about what you would expect from, you know, your your terrible college friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just it, it's 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 fascinating as you'll get into it talking about all the things this dog does in the film. Uh, yeah, you know, it, I I found that particular note interestingly played but yeah. yes the dog doesn't make it to the end much like that co-ed in the towel also would not make it to the end right right so anyway sometime later the girls wander through the snow calling to tiger but he doesn't respond they give up weirdly quickly on this dog jessica my feet are getting soaked yeah i know this is dumb let's go back it's like what you're just gonna leave your dog out here in the snow <laughs> it's too hard to find bye there's a white dog blends in as soon as, as soon as this scene happened i'm like you got a pet. You got a responsibility. <laughs> if your dog is lost, you don't look for an hour and then call it quits. You get your ass out there and you find that fucking dog. When they get back to the car, the dog is sitting on top of it. And as pissed as they are to see it, the dog has much more reason to be pissed at them. The guys in the cave unplug a hole big enough to walk through, and inside they see reflections gleaming all around a cavern. There's an underground lake here, and something unfamiliar splashes through the water away from them. Mark spots a human skull on the floor. It's bleached white, despite having spent the last 70 years underground. As they explore the nearby space, they find many more bones all jumbled together in a big pile. This must be the room where the miners died. Somehow, all those rescue crews came down here and searched for a while, and they couldn't find these miners, and these, like, three dudes were able to dig out enough rocks to find it in, like, a day and a half. Well, they do kind of reference that in the movie, where they say that the search and rescue was abandoned. Yeah. So I think that we they never really have any indication that 
the people at the time like acknowledged there was a reason for the abandonment, but I, I'm I'm guessing that outside of the newspapers there was, and everyone's like, we're not going in there. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, my assumption was that they either knew about the boogans or were aware of the boogans and were like, yeah, we're just going to call this off and say we couldn't find them. Yeah, but then it's weird that there's like really only one witness that knows about the boogans. That's true. Fact. But he's discredited. But, but maybe he's the only one who's willing to talk about it. Everybody else is like, shut up, don't say anything. Yeah, it's company town. Right. You know, you don't you don't cross the company and the company says don't talk about the boogans. We don't talk about the boogans. Yeah. That's <laughs> rules number one and two of Boogans Club. <laughs> I had the same idea that like <laughs> we don't talk about boogans. Um, <laughs> but Richard Richard thing is I in my head it was like they lost a couple of search parties and they were like, We're not gonna <laughs> lose anymore. That's true. Kind of, That's and, true. And they and they blow it up. This yep. pile of bones is pretty deep. Yeah. I do like the idea that they were like, this must be where the, the miners were. And they all they just got into a pile together. Yeah, they, were just, they cuddled while they died. <laughs> you got to share that <laughs> body warmth. Yeah. Dan radios out to Brian that they've made an incredible find here. The Volkswagen arrives in Silver City. Both Trish and Jessica are pretty cute, but maybe it's the haircut. Trish reminds me a lot of a young Jessica Walter from Play Misty <laughs> for me. So my brain is telling me she's a psychopath. <laughs> and I'm like, don't trust this girl. <laughs> But the girls eventually find the cabin, and Jessica calls dibs on a bed for her and Roger, 30 seconds before breaking it by jumping up and down to test its durability. Trish tries to take a shower, but the water is freezing, so she ventures into the basement to light the boiler. We watch her light the boiler in the POV of something crawling around down there. Trish only senses its presence and never sees it. She explores the basement with a flashlight for a while and grabs a shovel off the wall to swing at whoever's creeping around down here. Suddenly, a box falls off a shelf to reveal Tiger the dog is the one haunting her in the basement. <laughs> it just like crept down here silently so that it could knock this box over and scare the shit out of her. But the, you're right, that's totally like a friend did that as a joke and she's pissed off about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I was about to uh, say. Yeah. <laughs> as Mark and Roger leave the mine for the day, Roger learns that he has to be back here at 3 a.m. tonight to leave to Denver to collect some new readings that will affect their work somehow. Again, you see the old man watching them. We cut to an extreme close-up of Jessica screaming, and then we zoom the camera out to see that she's in a tickle fight with Roger. Her screams draw Trish from the shower, and she's annoyed to find the couple tickling each other while she stands there in a towel. From behind, we can see the towel is open and her butt is hanging out, just in time for Mark to come around a corner with supplies. He drops a box, and then she notices a stranger can see her ass. So she spins around, but now Roger and Jessica are getting an eyeful, and Mark introduces himself. Roger whistles, and Trish turns around again, scrambling back into the shower, and Mark asks the happy couple if they'd like him to close the door. Jessica somehow references a movie from the future. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> I'm speaking, of course, of Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> I, I was actually about to call you out for um, using the detail of uh, half of her butt hanging out. But yeah, you're right. I forgot that was that was a plot device. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tiger has had enough of the tickle fight and starts to attack Roger and Mark loads up the fridge with beer. Tiger is thrown out of the sex room and comes to join Mark in the kitchen. He scratches and barks at a random door, but when Mark opens it for him, the dog runs and hides. Trish enters the kitchen and grabs a beer from the fridge. She seems impressed when Tiger obeys Mark's commands. As a conversation starter, he tells Trish that for Tiger's last birthday, he got the dog a miniature functional electric chair, which I guess was just like a, hey, this is a funny joke, and she likes it. Uh, she goes for this. I, I do feel a little awkward for Trish because this seems like a very much a 
Dennis implication scenario from yeah. It's Always Sunny. <laughs> because uh, of the implication. Yeah, because whether or not she likes this guy at all, she's trapped here with this yeah. guy f- while her friend is having sex. She's got nowhere to go. And, <laughs> and, no and he's else. already seen her ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible situation to be in. Uh, oh my God, poor Trish. I didn't even think about that, but yes. <laughs> Uh, do you do this for a hobby, or are you a professional pet executioner? I'm just putting my college education to work. Electrical engineering. Trish informs Mark that she just got a job as an assistant at the Colorado Post. I think it would have been much funnier if he uh, didn't say electrical engineering, but pet murdering. Like, I got a <laughs> that degree, was his degree yeah. pet murdering. I just want to use that. <laughs> Someone knocks at the door, and Tiger answers it first with some barking. It's a police officer, and he's here looking for Martha Chapman, the owner of this property. Mark and Trish explain that the house was empty since they arrived. Unfortunately, the only person here who spoke with Martha was Roger, and he's currently busy. The cop insists on speaking with him, so Mark moves to interrupt the fun. Roger is understandably hesitant to leave the room, but we cut to Roger buttoning up his shirt in the living room. Turns out, nobody here had helpful information, and when the cop leaves, Tiger shoots out the door. The cop offers to retrieve the dog, but the kids all want a bear to eat it. (laughs) I'll get him. No! It's okay. We let him play outside all the time. Yeah, we're training him to play in the road. Back at the mine, we see Brian leave the office late and get into the Syndicated Mines Incorporated pickup truck. As soon as the truck is going, Old Man Scalzalot creeps out from behind the office trailer. All four kids hop in their truck and head down to Silver City Cafe, and Tiger is left behind and not happy about it. The obvious assumption is that the dog won't be here when they get back because they're like, sorry, you can't come with us. Yeah. And you expect that's the we'll be right back moment. Right. And the Harbinger is like really dropping the ball here. I yeah. Mean, the Harbinger has had multiple opportunities to, to harbinge and uh, he, is, <laughs> he harbinge. is not getting it done. I love that as a verb. <laughs> that's my new favorite. <laughs> Tiger gets back at them by chewing all their shoes and scarves to pieces. Tiger seems to sense something in the house, and we get a fisheye POV in the basement. The dog moves to investigate, but won't step completely into the darkness. This is a well-trained dog. It backs backward up the stairs, away from whatever is approaching, and then hides behind a wastebasket, but when it accidentally tips the wastebasket over, it runs to open a cabinet with its face to hide inside. And this all happens in, like, individual shots, but... It's clearly doing these things. There's not a PA knocking over the wastebasket. It looks great. Oh, I, I, but I do want to say, like, I think this is where the animosity toward the dog came from. It was rewrites on the day as it was happening. The director was like, "No, we're going to kill this dog." Yeah, uh, and like it was, and like I, I was peppering all the dialogue from that point on. <laughs> we need to make it nastier. If you've ever worked with an animal to try to get it to do what this dog does, <laughs> those were multiple days out of your schedule and it's unbelievable what they come came away with at the end of that so yeah. that much credit but i understand why probably everyone on set was kind of like yeah you know if the dog dies the dog dies yeah. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do <laughs> this is why the scene with the dog is the one where they left him alone because nobody else wanted to be on set it's like literally just the dog trainer and a cameraman <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably a second unit for sure. Yeah. The double date moves from the cafe to a bar where they happen to bump into Dan and Brian from the mine. Roger has to leave to get a head start on the Denver drive, but he insists that Jessica stay here and have fun. When Dan challenges the group to a game of pool, only Jessica takes him up. 
Brian, Trish, and Mark sit in a booth together, and Brian starts to tell the prospective journalist about the Black Friday mine disaster of Silver City. Mark admits they've stumbled onto a mass gravesite in their underground explorations. There should be, like, more people at the mine now because that happened. We yeah. found hundreds, like, almost a hundred bodies down here, and the police aren't even at the mine, like, it, inspecting things. Yeah, you would have you would have the coroner there, people yeah. to try to, uh, you know, because the... And they, the press and everything. It's like, we discovered a 70-year-old... Yeah. mine disaster bone pile yeah at least somebody to respectfully remove it before you keep mining yeah, operations you're still going. setting off dynamite <laughs> in the same caves with all these bones Co- company town guys company yep. town <laughs> we gotta make sure the, you know, the 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 company's interests first before you know you go passing out the bones <laughs> <laughs> Trish agrees to look into it with some help from the local newspaper office. In the background, Jessica is trouncing Dan at the pool table. After she takes all of Dan's money, she challenges Brian to a game, and he stupidly accepts. Back at the house, Roger puts his truck in the garage and finds the inside of the cabin in shambles. There are dirty plates and cans all over the floor, and the chairs are tipped and chewed up. He calls to Tiger to administer a punishment, but the dog never responds. Back at the bar, Brian is throwing good money after bad trying to break even against Jessica. In the house, Roger sets an alarm and then goes to sleep with all of his clothes on, like three layers of shirts. In the bar, Mark and Trish play a game where they hit on each other pretending to be strangers. He asks if anyone has ever complimented her looks, and in particular her eyes, nose, or mouth, and she tells him that yes, they've complimented all those things already. He's sad to learn how unoriginal he is. Oh, please don't stop now. I love the old complimentary approach. Well, I'm not stopping. I'm just running out. Is he admitting to her here that she has a butter body or something? Whoa. <laughs> he literally can't think of anything <laughs> he likes other than those three things on her head. We're seeing the invention of the game here, guys. Like, this is, this is like a... Uh... So he's negging her is what's yeah. happening. <laughs> well, I mean, he's starting out with a compliment and then he's going to take it away. He's like, that's yell, literally it's, all it's, I can see. It's, it's chapter two of the game. Here we go. <laughs> he invites her back to his place to hear some tunes, but she likes the music here. So he invites her on a walk and she reminds him it's snowing. She suggests a romantic fire in the fireplace and Mark is ready to take her home immediately. Jessica's also ready to go because she's taken the old men for all the cash they brought. This is maybe the first time in the 10 or 12 movies we've seen where someone wins money playing pool and they didn't immediately get the shit kicked out of them and then lose the money. I feel like this was a more respectful representation of a woman playing pool and winning than we had in Baltimore Bullet, which had a professional female billiards player. Yeah, and then she doesn't (laughs) even get to play in the final contest. We do, however, get the requisite... Oh, come on. Give us a chance to get even. And for a second, I thought these two older men were going to turn very dark on her. Like, you better give us our money back. Jessica agrees to stay and take the last of their cash in exchange for a ride home later. This also allows Trish and Mark some time alone. Back at the house, we see Roger tossing and turning in bed until it crumbles beneath him. He decides to get up before his alarm, but Tiger is nowhere to be found still. He grabs a beer from the fridge, and as he's walking through the garage, he seems to trip. Turns out, in an insert, we see he's not tripping, but something is grabbing him around the ankle, like a tentacle. He's able to shake the first one off, but the second one pulls him underneath his own vehicle. When Mark finally wrestles himself free of its grasp, his entire lower ankle is drenched in blood, and he picks up a 2x4 to use as a cane. He leans down weirdly close to the thing that just tried to eat his foot in search of whatever attacked him. Suddenly, Roger is swatted at eye level with another tentacle, and goes flying through a balsa door. When Roger falls to the ground again, the creature gets a hold of his legs and pulls him completely out of sight under the vehicle. 
Mark and Trish get back to the house and are very close to kissing when Roger's alarm goes off. They notice he left early, probably because the bed is trash. And apparently, like, the Boogans went back in and fixed it because it's, like, <laughs> it's not as broken as it was when he walked out of this room. They've been maintaining this empty house for yeah. years. <laughs> well, and how does the Boogans get in and out of the garage? Who knows? Maybe there's a tunnel under the car. Under the car? See. Yeah it, yeah, it seemed to suggest there's like some kind of a drain or a tunnel under, yeah, right under there. the car. Uh, the lovebirds return to the den to have sex in front of the fireplace. Do you guys recall the last time we saw two people carelessly having sex in front of a fireplace where other people could just walk in at any moment? I do. What was that? Endless love. That's right. <laughs> Don't kink shame. <laughs> a POV creeps around the house and finds them in the living room. Trish accidentally pulls a nightstand over and Tiger suddenly yelps from the darkness and jumps over them. In the morning, Mark leaves Trish naked in bed so he can sneak out to work and nearly crashes into Jessica outside the door. She asks if he's seen Tiger. Well, we almost had a menage a trois with him last night. I, I do feel like, okay, so normally I am not seated on the same side of the table as Richard. I do feel obligated to point out the note right here <laughs> that says, they have sex. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That, that, that is how I write every note whenever someone has sex. I, I, I ex exaggerate it. I just feel like the audience deserves to know that. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica says he didn't join her in bed, which is unlike him, and Mark agrees to be late for work and help Jessica find the dog. In the basement, he finds a small door in the wall with a cave behind it, but it's half-acidly boarded up. The dog could easily fit down here, and if I didn't find it in the rest of the house, I would assume this is where it went. And I don't understand the purpose of this. Of this, yeah, a did a human make this? Is this how the miners went to work when it was really snowy? They literally just dug a mine the whole way to work. <laughs> Back in my day, I had to mine my way to work. <laughs> both ways. What? Why both ways? Couldn't you just take the first mine? There's all those tunnels in Toronto because it's snowy. You yeah, wanna, that's true. You don't want to be above ground. Yeah, there's a ton of snow. Uh, they probably didn't have snow plows or cars it's cold outside today <laughs> i'm gonna waste the next four months digging a hole to work <laughs> there you go yeah yeah there's something to tell your grandkids perfect <laughs> jessica finds tiger hiding somewhere but we never really see where presumably he was still in that cabinet that we saw him duck into and he just hasn't barked at all overnight as mark leaves jessica reminds him that she's making cake tonight at the mine, the entrance has been boarded up with the word death painted in red, and three crosses have been planted in the snow outside. They call the sheriff out here to investigate this for some reason. <laughs> what about it's like the it's bones? just three pieces of wood, just take those <laughs> off. Yeah. And then he just turns around and gets in his car and leaves without all the bodies. <laughs> I'm just saying, Harbinger, like you're 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 doing terrible work here. Yeah. He's trying to step it up though. This is this is you know, there's production value to this. He spent some money down at the Home Depot. It's still super <laughs> passive. Yeah. I feel like we could be a lot more direct with our messaging. Yeah. I, I'm impressed at how well he painted the word death. Yeah. Like it's it's just, it's just very fine painting. Or that he can spell it all. He's got 70 years of practice writing that. Has he been writing death a lot? I, I, I just imagine his room is covered in the word know, death. Yeah. <laughs> Look, guys, we're talking about the greatest generation right now. They don't half ass anything. Yeah. Right? Those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and the sheriff shows up and he looks at this display and he goes, yep, shit's weird. Bye. <laughs> he turns around. <laughs> He's like, no help, but I don't know what you wanted from him. It was probably vandals. It's like, yeah, that's this is vandalism, so it definitely was vandals <laughs> by definition, but still weird, right? 
that they drove out in the middle of the night in the middle of winter to an abandoned mine just to write death. Back at the cabin, the girls clean the place up and cook for the boys. Trish asks if Jessica intends to marry Roger, and she says she has no interest in that. Trish takes a shopping list out with her, but she intends to spend the day at the Silver City Gazette researching the Black Friday mine disaster. Back at the mine, the men leave another vehicle full of equipment unattended, and old man McHarbinger pilfers a few sticks of dynamite from the box in the back of the truck. He manhandles that dynamite. He's just <laughs> scooping it up and tossing it around. It's like, it's like you don't just click these together. <laughs> at the Silver City Gazette, Trish meets Sylvia Tusker, a former paper girl for The Post, where Trish will be starting work soon. Tusker tries to pitch being the first paper girl as great fodder for an article, and Trish humors her. You know there's a story you could write up? The first girl paper boys in Denver. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to be sure and remember that. Anyway, do you have any info on this terrible disaster? <laughs> Back at the mine, work lights are put up around the underground pond. Mark points out how weird it is that these bones are just randomly piled like this, and somehow it hadn't occurred to anyone else yet. Brian mentions that Roger seems to be MIA in Denver and asks Mark to give him a call. The old man who stole the dynamite sneaks into the mine. <laughs> That's not good. Back at the house, Jessica lets Tiger out for a pee and then notices tire tracks to the garage and finds them suspicious for some reason. <laughs> Even though there would be tire tracks here whether or not he left because you leave tracks when you move in both directions. Well, but maybe the fact that there's only one set. He could have just exactly followed his path. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's it's. There's only one set of footprints. That G Jesus carried the car. Jesus carried the car <laughs> the rest of the way. <laughs> Man, that guy can lift. She opens the garage doors and finds Roger's truck, indicating that he never left. Back at the Gazette, Tusker finds an article about an army lieutenant sent to supervise the rescue efforts, but he was turned away on arrival because the mine was officially closed to rescuers. Trish finds a profile on the disaster's lone survivor, Harold Griswold. He was committed to an asylum before he could testify on what happened down here. Do you guys recall the last time we saw the lone survivor of a mine cave-in named Harry get committed to an asylum? Was it? I know. Uh, oh. it's, I know. It's a um, uh, uh, bloody Valentine. My bloody Valentine. That's it. Yeah. My bloody Valentine is correct. Hey. His 80s Harry Warden was the underground miner who ate all of his friends. Uh, I'm good at this. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, this Harry also ate all his friends. That's why the bones are piled up in one corner. Well, at least he was tidy after his meal. That's true. He ate every scrap. It's like I've been here the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica calls for Trish to report that Roger never took the car, and we cut right to Trish arriving at the mine to share the news with Mark. She also tells him about Mr. Griswold, the survivor. Working in the mine, Dan keeps hearing something splashing around in the water. He's a little creeped out when his friend Brian grabs him hard from behind, asking for envelopes. Hey! Got any more of these envelopes? I'm out. Yeah, there's some of them right over there. Okay, get tough about it. At the cabin, Jessica undresses for a shower, and the POV in the basement starts moving around again. I think it just wants to see these people naked. Like, it's waiting for the shower to come on. It's like, okay, now's my chance. <laughs> Tiger senses it immediately, and when the basement starts growling, Tiger rushes to the bathroom door to warn Jessica. Now the sounds are echoing up out of a ventilation grate in the floor, and the dog barks at it incessantly. Suddenly, tentacles emerge from the grate and start bending the bars down into it. The dog looks down into the hole and we get the monster's POV. 
It's impossible not to compare this shot to Silence of the Lambs, which also famously features a Bichon Freeze looking down into a dark hole from above. But do you, do you recall the last film that we watched where something uh, illogically is in a grate? That it wouldn't possibly it wouldn't fit, fit through? That <laughs> That would be the unseen again, for yeah. sure. I was looking up the dog Darla that played Precious in Silence of the Lambs, and apparently she's also the dog from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the pink poodle that's in the, oh, the front oh, bike really? basket. And uh, she's also Queenie in The Burbs oh, that nice. the guy's carrying around. And she's that ratty poodle from Batman Returns that walks around with a grenade hanging out of its mouth. Okay. Um, so that's a fun filmography or film dography, if you will. Did you, did you find out about this dog though? Because this dog there's this is actually beats that dog. Yeah, this dog <laughs> is not in much else, and it was actually played by two dogs. So I assume one of them was the asshole, and then the other one was the talented one, and then they just didn't use them in the same scenes. That explains the the tone shift and the way the characters react to the dog. Yes, too. they're like we like <laughs> this one. Jessica is doing her best in the shower to ignore Tiger's barking, but when the barking becomes yelping in pain, she runs out of the bathroom wrapped in a towel and turns a corner to find a floor vent all bent down and matted with clumps of bloody dog hair. While she leans over the hole, something grabs her hand and tries to pull her down as well. The stunt guy here probably grabbed her harder than she expected because in the overhead shot, her towel falls off completely and she crashes against the vent, but in the rest of the scene, it's all buttoned back up, so that clearly wasn't on purpose. She gets into a bloody tug-of-war with the basement tentacles, but eventually pulls her hand back. More growls emanate from the vent. She pushes a dresser over on top of it, and something launches the dresser hard up off the grate, and then we chase her around the house in the creature's POV as she pelts it with pans and empty boxes, for some reason expecting that they will slow this thing down after it just punched a dresser into the sky. <laughs> She struggles with the front door for a moment, but for some reason can't get it open and moves into the garage. The creature pounds on the closed door behind her, nearly ramming it out of its frame. Sorry, I was just thinking of, uh, what was the name of that movie? Where the woman's in the diner trying to get away from the killer, and she tries the door and it's like, fuck, 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 fuck. Oh, uh, night school? Night school. <laughs> yeah. The creature pounds on the closed door behind her, nearly ramming it out of its frame. It stops pounding for a moment, and she steps away, giving the monster the chance to crash through the door and corner her. It yanks her to the floor and then slashes at her face and neck with what look like arachnid limbs tipped with razor-sharp claws. I thought we had tentacles, but now we have, like, spider legs. I don't know what's it's happening. It's a bugging. It can have all sorts of things. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just flexing its tentacles real hard. Oh, okay, into that's a specific all. shape. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> in the cave, Dan spots something floating in the water, but considering how frequently he thinks he hears something splashing around and how many hours he spent in this cave today, he really should have found this sooner because <laughs> it's visible from, like, the outside of the, of the pool. He wades out to the shape and somehow still doesn't recognize it as a person until he has lifted it fully out of the water. When he pulls it out, it's Roger with a severely damaged face, but Roger was killed back at the house, and, minor spoiler, we won't see the Boogans dramatically relocate their victims to this cave moving forward. So, I don't know why this one guy, they were like, we're gonna take him all the way back and then just throw him in that lake we have. But the other bodies we'll just leave in the house. We're gonna eat him later. We're all full. We already ate um, the other lady. Um, and that dog. <laughs> well, we didn't eat the so, dog. We, the dog came after Roger, so there's gonna be a dog floating around there, too. Oh, okay. And the other bit of, the other bit of like, you know, the, 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 the suspension of disbelief that we gotta grab here is, like, we're in the 80s, and if you're in a cave 
they're going to have to light everything so that you, the audience, can see. But right. that doesn't mean necessarily that the characters sure, can see that makes everything. Sense. So it's supposed to be very dark. Uh, so we're just supposed to kind of live in that little bit of a, of a world because they hadn't quite figured out how to do no light. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that that really uh, ultra real dramatic stuff. Because, you know, they wanted to show you the action, but you still have to kind of believe the characters are fumbling around in a dark this ass is, game. This is not John Alcott lighting. This is, <laughs> they're, they're doing right. their best. We're just, we want you to see what's happening. Yeah. I, I know that you, being from California, don't know about these, but back where I'm from, we had something called a root cellar. You got to put your food underground to keep it fresh. Okay. So that's why these bodies are in. But there's yeah. a basement at the house. Well, that's where, but see, that's where one of the other bodies is. It's, and there's too many people going in there also. Yeah. It's a lot of traffic. Don't want to scare off the prey. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to scare off the prey. You got to, you got to bring it. Yeah. <laughs> As they try to lift Roger's corpse from the water, the old man who's been spying on the dig wanders into monologue at them. Weirdly, though the article Trish found referred to the disaster survivor as Harold Griswold, this actor, John Lorimer, is credited as Blanchard. So it turns out he's not the survivor. This whole time I thought he was going to be the guy who survived. But he introduces himself to Dan and Brian as the man who's been warning them to stay out of the mine, and then he threatens to close it all back up right now with dynamite from his pocket. I mean, he could have been. Like, I'm not right? sure, like, story-wise, why he isn't the survivor. I don't know either, because the, the mine caved in 70 years ago. This guy right. could easily be 90. Sure. And there would definitely be 20 or younger year olds living working in this mine yeah well i i believe he he credits himself as the grandson or the no son. he says he's the son, son okay of, of yeah. that guy but i'm just I, I guess i'm not sure why he's not, why just, not just be that guy yeah who just like broke out of an asylum and spends all of his time watching this mine not unlike the guy from my bloody valentine who sp- every year like was coming back to the town to make sure they didn't have a Valentine's Day party. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, they, yeah, you make a good point. Yeah, this, narratively, that actually would have helped all of his really super weird behavior too. Yeah, because he's time. crazy. Uh, he's been in an yeah, asylum yeah. for 70 well, years. <laughs> he's not crazy, but he's been gaslit to probably believing right. he's crazy at this point. They yeah. put him there, you know, so yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That would have narratively been a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> Notes. Mark stumbles in in the middle of this, and Brian interrupts him from accidentally saving the day by taking the dynamite away from the old man. I don't know why he's like, no, 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 stop talking. He's going to blow us up. You're, you're interrupting him. Blanchard points out Roger's corpse, and Mark is just as confused to find it here as I am. Blanchard claims that whatever killed Roger was released by their blasting efforts into the underground tunnels that lead to every home in town. Tunnels? There's a tunnel to the house. The girls! Get him out! You've got to get him out quick! Come on, for God's sake, get them the hell out of there! All three older men urge Mark to race home and save the girls while they resume their plans to commit suicide together. Blanchard explains that he's actually the son of the incarcerated survivor, but I would have believed this guy was 90. He says he's been guarding the mines to keep people away, like Mrs. Voorhees driving past Camp Crystal Lake every few months to make sure nobody's trying to reopen it. Like, is that a sign? No. Well, uh, and I... I was going to say also, like the in the eighties, like um, really older, you, you got old a lot faster. That's there's, true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's this, this guy's believably fifty for nineteen eighty one. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, there's a scene in uh, uh, this uh, John Wayne movie called Big Jake, where at the very beginning, where uh, Morena Harris talking to uh, the, the 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 guy who runs her ranch for her, and this man is clearly in his sixties, bald, bright white hair, like just grizzled is all, and he's like. 
well, I'm only a man of 42. And it's like, what? <laughs> Come on. Oh, no. <laughs> hard years. Hard years. But I've been traveling at near light speed for <laughs> two decades of that time. So I I, I don't know. Maybe they, they're just trying to make everybody feel better about how bad they looked in the 80s. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's what it was. They didn't have the heart to be like, no, your character's 90. So they were like, no, no, no you're this kid. You're the you're the son of the guy. Don't worry about it. You're in, his, you're in your 50s. You look great. Look <laughs> <laughs> Brian slowly approaches Blanchard claiming he will help the man close up the mine, but he's not falling for it. Suddenly, we get a creature POV moving through the water toward the argument. A tentacle whips around Dan and drags him out into the pond away from them. Even Blanchard is shocked to see the creatures in person, probably only having heard about them in his father's stories. Apparently, Harry named them, though. Oh, Suddenly, the creature makes a U-turn toward them, and Blanchard tosses a stick of dynamite into the water. The explosion looks like a cherry bomb, though. <laughs> it's nothing. It's definitely not enough to cave in this whole structure. <laughs> Maybe the three of them together would have done it. The three sticks he had. He lights a second stick, but another tentacle grabs him by the top of the head and then tugs him out into the water. I really like the look of this guy disappearing like he's, like he's stuck on the end of a vacuum just right into the water. He drops a lit stick of dynamite on the ground, and Brian dives to duck and cover before it explodes. I was going to say, if you like that effect, you're really going to love it if you guys ever make it to 1988 and you get to watch the blob. There's tons of guys getting <laughs> grabbed by <laughs> vacuum cleaner hoses and yanked by their heads. It's, it's wonderful. Perfect. <laughs> the explosion takes out their electrical line so the lights all go out, and a rock slide fills the tunnel out of the cavern. Hours later, Mark is still trying to reach Trish and Jessica from the phone right outside the mine. He'd be there by now if he just drove out there. He gives up to call the sheriff's office just as Trish is walking into the house. She hears the shower running, but keeps calling for Jessica, unable to deduce that she is probably in the shower that's running. Mark finally drives home. Trish notices the mess and finds blood smears on the floor in the garage beside the demolished door, but Jessica's body is gone. She leans down and dips her fingers in the blood for some reason, and I really wanted her to just lick her fingers, because why even fucking touch the blood? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't get it unless you wanted to know what your friend's blood tastes like. Then I understand. Well, I think you understand. <laughs> no, I think you touched it. <laughs> That's all there is. You're touching it to make sure that it's blood. You're, well, I, I guess I would sure just <laughs> assume it was blood. <laughs> but it could be motor oil. I don't but know. But she doesn't even react like, yes, that's definitely blood. She just looks at it like... There's stuff on my fingers and then wipes it on her pants. Yeah, she wipes it on her pants. That's the that's the part that I can't see. Oh, and again, you you know you're in a horror movie. She she doesn't know yeah. she's in a horror movie yet. But, so like somebody spilled pasta sauce. What the hell? This yeah. is weird. So she's what like, I'm going to do a test to see if it's blood. And she's like, I have no fucking idea. And then wipes it off on her pants. <laughs> I'm just saying the expectation. <laughs> <laughs> this pasta sauce feels very irony. Yeah. I just say you, you you walk into your home at any given time and you don't expect to see blood trails. So like you you, you but but we are expecting to see blood trails because we came to the movie right tickets because we're watching a movie that has boogans in it's it. It's that oh man that separation that the audience has from the the characters that's a tough thing to cross. It's a, it's it's tough. The touch test doesn't confirm her suspicion that it's blood, and she follows the streaks along the floor to the basement door. If I came upon this scene, I would for sure assume that my friend accidentally cut herself and then went to take a shower 
in the still audibly running shower and then probably passed out from blood loss in there. But Trish hasn't even checked the bathroom. It's like, at least look, you hear a shower running. There's only one person that's supposed to be home. Man, you go to some dark places, man. I'm thinking like somebody broke a jar of jam <laughs> and like the and dog slashed open their dragging. neck with it. <laughs> Maybe the the dog dragged something in. You you, you gotta <laughs> whoever whoever hears they're fine. They're taking a shower. <laughs> <laughs> the sheriff follows Mark down the road to the house. Trish arms herself with a pitchfork before inspecting the basement. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a girl defend herself with a pitchfork pointed forward like this? Oh, Friday the 13th part three. Well, very close. Friday the 13th part two. That's correct. <laughs> oh yeah. You guys haven't got to part three yet. My bad. Not okay. yet. That's 3d. <laughs> we'll be getting to that next season. Oh, uh, it's actually great. It's one of my favorites. Trish finds more blood on the floor and guess what she fucking does. <laughs> she puts her fingers in it again. What are you doing? What new information are you gleaming from touching a second puddle of human blood? She smears the second sample on her jeans again and then follows a creaking sound to the corner of the room. She accidentally knocks over a box with the pitchfork handle, and apparently the boogans precariously balance Jessica's corpse against it because it just falls to the ground in front of her here when the box falls over. Trish is horrified and tries to book it up the stairs, but a tentacle whips around her leg and throws her back down from the top. We finally get our first glimpse of the creature, but it just looks like a wide-open sock puppet mouth right now, but it has a lot of scary teeth inside. I was saying, if you were a kid in the 80s and you grew up watching uh, uh, you know, the, the kid shows they had in the 70s, H.R. Puff and stuff, that's terrifying. Sure, yeah. That is yeah. a nightmare. That is the, all of your nightmares have looked exactly like that for a period <laughs> And waiting for it for so long, you're just ready to be horrified by it. Exactly. Mark and the sheriff burst in and race to the basement door. Mark tries to pull Trish loose from the grasp of the monster while the sheriff opens fire on it. We can see the boogans wider, and it is shaped similarly to a turtle with no skin, but with tentacles unfurled in every direction around it. Trish tells Mark that her friend died, and Mark says, Coincidence of coincidences, my friend died. We have so much in common. <laughs> it's, all, it's all part of the game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sheriff gets real close to the monster we all know isn't dead, so it opens its huge mouth and bites down with one row of teeth on either side of the sheriff's face. This is so great it's just it's like a face hugger that i wanted yeah <laughs> so he's wrestling around with this creature for a moment and then they accidentally knock a pipe loose from something in the basement which causes flammable liquid to just pool all over the floor uh, down here heating oil heating oil there you go that's the word <laughs> eventually the sheriff loses strength and falls to the floor before mark even considers helping he picks up the pitchfork and stabs repeatedly at the monster until it is double dead, as Oogie Boogie would say, but not quick enough to save the sheriff. The puddle on the floor spontaneously combusts, and the room is quickly in flames. The stairs out of the basement are an inferno, and the creature is resurrected again. So Mark pries the boards off the tunnel back to the cave, and they use it as an escape route when the full tank of oil explodes. When it does, flames lick down the tunnel, and from outside we see the house completely obliterated. It's such a cool shot because this is like a full-sized house that they exploded for the shot. And I get why they rolled on it for like 10 minutes to get the credits shot, too, of this just burning house. Oh, I'm telling you, like, when, you, when you're doing a low-budget film and you convince the town that you're filming in to let you burn down a house, which I've done, oh, <laughs> you don't stop filming. You don't. You film every little bit yeah. of that. You Five get cameras. Every camera. Yeah. You, like, tell every PA, get your phone out, guys. We're filming this. We're going to get every, <laughs> every shot. It is yeah. such a blessing. 
and you and you're going to use it. You're going to use it for for a while. So yeah, no, absolutely the right choice by all the filmmakers. That reminds me of we we talked about in Thief. Oh. Where they where they blew up a residential house, but it was a fake house that they built in the front yard of a real house. Right. But they ended up having to tear down the real house too because the explosion cracked they, the foundation. They blew up too much. And of they it were like, real. "Oops, we used too much," and they had to tear out the oh. real house. See, I was thinking about oh. on uh, like in the Dark Knight, and they actually blew up the hospital, but Heath Ledger wasn't allowed to watch. But it was like you're literally blowing up the hospital, but the shot was the hospital blowing up in the background while he's like, you know, don't look at the explosion guy. And, you know, and he's and, clicking the button. And it's not working. Well, yeah. And then, and then it explodes and he's supposed to just keep walking away, but, or, or driving away. On he the gets, bus? he gets into the back of the bus and, and he's not allowed to look, but if you, it, there's a, there's an extended cut of that, like the rest of the take, but what that's not in the movie where he finally gets all like they, they're yelling cut and he finally gets to turn around and look at it. And he's like, like a kid in the so candy store. Like he's so excited to see the, burning building <laughs> that's awesome well nolan's trying to actually like blow up a nuke for his new movie oh, so God. yeah know, some some actors going to be really excited for that surely there's no way they're going to let him do that yeah filmmakers are going crazy right now they're about to launch <laughs> tom cruise into space to shoot a scene on a spacewalk into space oh god he's literally going to shoot outside of a spaceship in space ridiculous there, there are VFX artists, guys. That's, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> we don't need to do that. Although, what cooler way to go? If something <laughs> goes wrong, How like do- for Tom Cruise, you're like, that's the end of my legend. I don't have to do like it'll be amazing. People will talk about me forever. I died, and I'm the first person to re- verifiably die in space that the he, government doesn't didn't disavow. He's still up there, right? <laughs> yeah, no. trapped in orbit of no. the Earth. <laughs> They won't tell them. That's not a brave story. That's a, what are you doing, man? You didn't have to do that. (laughs) Anyway, listeners, go to space. (laughs) Listeners, go to space if you can. Oh, no. Um, It's it's fun to think that all that kept this house from becoming a smoking hole in the ground this whole time was a pipe that you could just jostle loose (laughs) and then it would just catch fire on its own and the house would explode. Like, what if the dog did that in the middle of the night? It just spontaneously combust. How how did it catch on fire though? There's a freaking pilot light at the base of this thing. Right. So somebody could have done that at any time. Is my point. It's yeah. not like someone threw a torch into it. But I'm not saying it's a mystery why the house blew. No, up. it's not a mystery. But <laughs> if the dog crawled around in the basement and got its collar stuck on this pipe and then yanked it loose, the house would explode in the middle of the night and kill everyone. Uh, uh, again, we're talking about the '80s. Right. That kind of stuff happened all the time. That's true. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Now we're just like, oh, whatever, meth house. That's the end. But in the 80s, it was like, yeah, some dog probably yanked a oil pipe loose. The house exploded. <laughs> no, 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 no the house deal. next door to me. The house next door to me uh, exploded. It's It just yeah, happens. It's, it's just a thing. <laughs> Get used to it. And there's so much so that you could walk away from it happening without looking back right. at it. That's a natural response yeah. to an explosion. Mm-hmm. It's actually weird to look back now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, you're surprised? <laughs> what are you looking at? <laughs> Is there something behind that exploding house? You actually press the button to make the bomb go off. <laughs> we cut back underground for one final shot of our survivors running through a real mine. This was a real mine used for just this one sequence of the film. All the other mine scenes were shot in a local abandoned grocery store dressed as a mine. Hmm. But the fire from the last scene got out of control. And not only did they lose the sets, but the entire grocery store burned to the ground. Oh, so they no. took out two buildings in this town. <laughs> They burnt down their grocery store. It was now, an abandoned grocery store. Oh, okay. I was like, you just made a food desert, guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, we were already in a food desert. <laughs> this is It's technically a food tundra if it's snowing. Okay. 
Mark and Trish come to a four-foot wall in the tunnel. Like someone just built a wall halfway and was like, that's good enough. <laughs> That'll keep the wolves out. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still laughing at Food Tundra. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, Mark sends Trish over the wall first for some reason, but then somehow something grabs him before he can get over it. Trish jostles a rock loose from the wall and drops it on the creature's head, killing it. You would expect that he would be like, oh, I'll go first, and then she has to save him from behind. Because it would make more sense that they don't see the creature on the other side of the wall than they see it on the same side as them. Mm -hmm. Running through the cave, they reunite with Brian, and he insists that they blast the mine closed before these things can escape, because there are more of them, even though we'll only see one. Or one at a time, anyway. While Mark sets a charge, a tentacle drops from the ceiling and wraps around Brian's neck, lifting him off the ground and hanging him in the mine before dropping his body to the floor. Now you're just killing people. That's not even to eat. That's just like, uh, look, I killed another one. Well, that's anyway. self-defense. I guess, yeah. But not, not just self-defense also. Like last time the, the, these bombs went off, these monsters got trapped for 72 years without any food. It's that's like true. grab as much food as you can, guys, because if these doors close again... You know, we want to yeah. eat. We're tired of eating our family, but it's okay reproducing with them. I guess. Oh my God, you're absolutely right. That's absolutely what was happening. They were definitely having babies and eating themselves. Yeah. Oh, no. God, this is dark. <laughs> this is dark. <laughs> I'm a fucking survived. Mark and Trish run for the opening and Mark tosses a stick of dynamite back to seal the entrance. And it's super effective. Much more effective than the last two sticks of dynamite we saw anyway. Trish cries with relief that it's all over, forgetting that the open tunnels still lead back to the burning yeah. house. Right? Yeah, I was like, like what? <laughs> as soon as that house is gone, they're just going to come out of that hole and then spread all over town, right? Again, this is the 80s. The, um, <laughs> the house will be done burning in like 15 minutes. They're, they're, they're going to, they made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> we watch flames consume the house under the scrolling red credits, and that is the end of our film. Uh, the Boogans, ladies and gentlemen. I think that was a fun movie. It's uh, definitely a step above the last couple Conway films we've covered. Um, but like we said, Earthbound was a, a pilot for a TV show that was not picked up mm -hmm. and was shot on 16 millimeter. Um, if you're not familiar, which would surprise me, Carl, that you've never heard of Earthbound 1981. But, uh, I'm, I'm excited to look for it. It's uh, What's his name? <laughs> the voice of Frosty the Snowman from the, from the old cartoon. Burl Ives. Burl Ives uh, is a grandfather, and he—you <laughs> got it. And he—my uh, brain has got some crazy trivia tonight. Hey, keep throwing them at me. Let's do it. <laughs> his his daughter and her husband died, but he inherited their child. And him and his grandson operate a hotel when aliens arrive in Gold Rush, California, and the aliens are looking for a specific metal to leave the planet. And uh, so. They're trying to find this metal at the same time the government's trying to find the aliens. And then they decide they're just going to live at this hotel with this old man. So it was supposed to be a fish out of water show about aliens living in a hotel in California. But didn't I, get I, just, up. I just want to say full disclosure. Until you said aliens land, I thought you were just telling me the life of Burl Ives. Up until <laughs> no, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's what happened. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It explains a lot about <laughs> Burl Ives, actually. Um, but yeah, uh, I really like this movie. I think this was a lot of fun. Um, the uh, it's it seems cheap uh in terms of the monster stuff but i think we all agreed that that was to good effect that yeah. you don't see it until the end and uh but the the mines i thought actually looked surprisingly good for for the budget this film probably had going um it definitely looks more expensive than his other two projects i mean i was still so grateful 
to see the monster because I was I was concerned that we were like most of the way through the movie and I'm like am I only ever going to get a tentacle here cuz I could see them doing that you know yeah, like yeah. they never even bothered to make more than that but then when I got to see it I'm like yes this is it <laughs> yeah and, and there are, there are there are multiple 80s horror films where you never really get a good look at the monster I, I, the other the other dvd that i bought the same time i bought this one was one called humongous and you never get a good look at the monster he is always in the shadows it's always very dark and i think that's on our is that 1982 i think that's on our schedule for next year yeah it, it's really funny the three movies that, that i've mentioned tonight the my bloody valentine the boogans and uh humongous those were those were all hitting uh the so like i i grew up on a on a very small farm in southeastern new mexico uh with some very poor very poor uh, uh family members uh who all decided when they found out that instead of getting cable out to the farm areas, some, some company had come in and it was called select TV and you could actually buy a little um, receiver that you would put up inside your house, like a, like a television antenna. Um, and then like pay a monthly fee to, you know, decode select TV. But then somebody found out about that quickly figured out how to decode it and was running around selling <laughs> the antennas that will let you get it for free, which my parents weirdly super religious Christian individuals that they were had no problem stealing mm. uh, pay television. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it, it was low rent HBO. So like everything on it was like Canadian horror films and all that type of stuff. Well, it's acceptable as long as you don't pay the heathens for it, right? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> exactly. Ex- exactly. But I mean, but like I said, it, it, it wasn't HBO. It was... It was TV. The HBO <laughs> that you beamed to the farmers. Uh, so, you know, it was always shows like, you know, The Boogans and My Bloody Valentine and uh, uh, Humongous, you know, which I, 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 until I actually watched The Boogans, I assumed it was another Canadian horror film like uh, My Bloody Valentine and Humongous was. Yeah, it does seem um, like it's going to be that, actually. I didn't realize that until you said it, but you're totally right. It seems like it's going to be one of those. Yeah, but uh, it, uh, well, I think probably the minds and everything that were kind of connected with it just seemed like somebody just lined up a bunch of movies all shooting in the same place uh, but yeah no uh it, it, this was one of those movies that i saw the trailer for as a kid probably a hundred times and desperately wanted to watch um and uh never got to and it disappeared and i was very excited to find the dvd and now to hear you casually mention there's a blu-ray that was definitely not out seven months ago when i, when I tracked down the dvd and paid far too much money <laughs> uh but yeah there, there, there was part of a whole quest of mine throughout my uh my adult years was to track down all of these old horror movies from the 80s that i wasn't allowed to see that lived in a lot bigger fanfare in my head i take it this would be a thumbs up for you then probably I mean, I'll only, uh, I would only say if it's something that has, that you saw as a kid that you desperately needed to see just to scratch that itch. Um, I mean, there are so many other eighties, uh, horror films that I would put in front of it. One of them you guys are doing next week or, or in another week or so like, uh, dead and buried, uh, like there, there's so many I would put in front of it uh, if you haven't caught them. Um, that being said, you know it's a fun '80s monster movie. It you know it, once once things start happening, they happen really fast. So like that uh, that second to the third act, just just like a it's like a ripcord as hard as you. Can. <laughs> uh, so so whatever it is, it doesn't last long. So you know that's that's the that's the good part. Uh, it's 
I, I, I'm sorry. It sounds like I'm crapping on the movie. I'm not crapping on the movie. I, I, I'm just saying that if you're going to be spending your 80s horror uh, uh, attention, there are probably a couple of others to put in front of it. But if you were specifically looking for that um, early 80s studio monster horror that you know just seemed to only live in a Roger Corman universe, this this would be a great place to uh, to 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 dig in. Yeah. All right, I I think I give this a thumbs up. I think you're it was al- you're fun. allowed to give it a thumbs up and put it low on the list of movies for the year. I do this all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Sorry. This is my first time here. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like I want to I want to save the, these recommendations. Like I can't be telling everybody. <laughs> You'll just get in a line and start watching all of the films of 1981. Who would yeah. do that? What kind what of crazy, maniac? <laughs> what kind of crazy maniacs would try to watch all of the movies through the uh, through the 80s? I think there was another podcast that tried to do this. And they didn't make it past 1984. So just so you guys know. I, you're talking about uh, <laughs> 80s all over, right? I believe so. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> if there's also more movies each year. There's like 20 to 30 more movies than the year previous every time. So yeah, they yeah. just st- started pumping them out like crazy. No, yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's like the people I don't think realize is like um, our our cinema world growing up in the eighties was was like such a a, a limited um, world where it was like you know today everybody looks at you know every superhero movie and kind of like whatever you know, but that's because there's nine hundred of them. You know, right. when I was a kid, we had Superman. That was it. Yeah, that was yeah. it. <laughs> you know, like you, yeah, Superman, Superman too, and you were thankful for them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like, so the, the the concept of having a blockbuster released every single weekend from the like the, the the second week of March until the uh, end of September, like that that was nonsense. You know, the, we had Memorial Day, we had Fourth of July, and then there was like some some fun studio fairs spattered in between that. Uh, but for the most part, like we completely changed how the whole uh, uh, studio dynamic works. We're we're uh, as a filmmaker, you know, we're strangling ourselves because we're not allowing films to actually succeed to their full potential because we're just dumping more films on top yeah, of it. Yeah, they just get chased immediately. Yeah, exactly. So it, it back back then, um, you know, that was a that was a growing concept. The blockbuster was changing the the model and uh, and steadily, you know, yeah. through that through that period of time. We for each episode, we rank all of our titles out of the year so far. We've covered 125 movies now for 1981. Where do you guys have this on your letterbox lists? Number one. Number but one. Because this is my first. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> it might change tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I well, I'm also gonna say I'm gonna give it a thumbs up. Yes, because uh, I would I would tell some people to watch this movie for sure. Uh, I have this one ranked at 64 out of 125. I have it right below Friday the 13th Part Two, which I, I'm gonna note also it's it's two below Blood Beach because I also okay. find that it's very have similar, a similar yeah. feel to this one. Oh, you guys watched Blood Beach? We yes. did. Yes. Oh, it's on my list still. Oh, I gotta find that one. It's right, it's, it's fun. <laughs> there's there's an HD copy on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like full oh, length, yeah. Uh, and it's got the, it's got what's his name, the guy from uh, John Saxon, the Dragon. John Saxon. Yes, I have uh, been wanting to see that. For, that's that's on my list. Yeah. All right, I'll well, watch it. it and then listen to us talk yeah. about it because that's actually a really fun episode of our show too. Oh, uh, okay, great. Because yeah, the tagline has lived in my head since I was a kid. Like the the tagline on the box, which was just when you thought it was safe to go back on the water, you, you can't, can't get, get to it. <laughs> that was the so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
was all I needed as a kid. I was like, I have to see this. <laughs> Richard, what do you have on your letterbox? Uh, well, I, uh, first of all, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm usually the voice of dissent. Yes. On, uh, on slashers well, all, and stuff like that. All horror films, on, basically. On most, horror, most horror films. We'll say, we'll say yeah. 90. The Shining was still the top of his list for <laughs> yeah. 80. Uh, so this is thumbs down, thumbs down for me because I, I'll never watch this again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, I have it at 100. Uh, so nice solid 100. Which <laughs> sure. <laughs> out of 125. <laughs> uh, Puts it below Super Fuzz, but above Student Bodies. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, this is so far above Student Bodies, Richard. Just, just yeah, my brain, like it, Super it, Fuzz and Student Bodies. Yeah, that's fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely watch Super Fuzz before I watch I, I think that's probably true for me, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you I, probably rated I, Super Fuzz much Who knows? My Richard. ratings have nothing to do with what I would watch a movie. Um, this gets a thumbs up from me, and I have the bookings at... 85 out of 125, which is just under Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing, Ooh. and just above Image of the Beast, which wow. I loved. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that's where I put that for this one. Um, why don't we go into the cast and crew notes? Our director here, like I said, was James L. Conway. He's a regular director for Taft Pictures, which sold to Jensen Farley Productions over the course of this film being shot. He has lots of producing credits, including 123 episodes of Charmed, which we'll see some of in the cast notes later, because obviously he reused people from his career. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for In Search of Noah's Ark and the story for Hangar 18. So far on the show, we've reviewed his Hangar 18 and Earthbound, and later he directs mostly television, including seven MacGyver episodes, ranging in quality from Birthday to Hell Week. He directed three Star Trek TNGs, seven DS9s, four Enterprises, and then uh, for other series, he directed 16 Charmeds, Four Smallvilles, four Supernaturals, one The Orville, and eight The Magicians. He ate The Magicians. He didn't direct anything. He just ate The Magicians. What? That doesn't make sense. Oh, there you go. Writer and story <laughs> come from David O'Malley, who plays fake Shemp in Army of Darkness for the Three Stooges bit in that movie. Uh, he oh went, my God. He goes uncredited <laughs> for his work on the Hangar 18 script. He also wrote Fatal Attraction for Carl Reiner. That's the Basic Instinct Fatal Attraction parody whose plot sounds more like a James M. Cain story, like Double Indemnity. Uh, the other writer was Jim Kauf. He has mostly producing credits now on shows like Angel, Ghost Whisperer, and Grimm. This was his first screenplay credit, and he comes back next season with Wacko and Pink Motel. Later, he writes Up the Creek, Another Stakeout, oh, Operation Dumbo Drop, Rush Hour, Snow Dogs, and on most of the shows I mentioned, he also produced at some point. That guy's a legend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've seen every single one of those. But but hang on. Hangar 18. That's that's really crazy I, I uh, that you mentioned that because I'm actually from Roswell, New Mexico. That's my hometown that I grew okay. up in. Uh, so like the, the Hangar 18 was like this weird thing that like tried to point um, everybody's attention to the Roswell incident. But nobody cared. Nobody gave a <laughs> shit back in 1980 or 81 when it, whenever it came out. And uh, it wasn't until the X-Files did it in 1993 when they first mentioned Roswell that suddenly Roswell became this big UFO capital of the world thing. I think that's definitely um, when it came online for me that I that I started caring about what? it as a kid. Was, was it really the X-Files that did that? That made it popular? Oh, yeah. No, I, well, I can well, tell Because exactly. I remember that, too. And I remember thinking, I, I, well, you know, like you know, I was young when that, that came out, but I was like... I just kind of assumed that Roswell was a thing before the X-Files, but... That it, people obsessed yeah. over? Yeah. 
but it kind of made it so, famous. Well, as so I grew up there when I left uh, in 1991, um, the, the, the Roswell UFO Museum was literally just a magazine rack that was pushed into the back corner of this mom and pop <laughs> video store that was um, all the way down on the south end of town where the Walker Air Force Base used to be and is now just kind of low income housing. Um, and uh, that was it like these were the only people in town who seemed to be interested at all in, in the whole Roswell story and the Mac chase thing and all of that so so they didn't have the ufo shaped diners they yet. had none of that so i left i went to college i was in college for a couple of years and then when i turned 18 I, I joined the army and um i was stationed overseas uh and when i was in um berlin and i remember like uh, as a way to kind of be a conversation starter, I would always tell people, yeah, they'd be like, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm really from this town in New Mexico called Roswell, but I was born in Waco. Cause at the time, like that was, Waco the had that. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a conversation starter. Like, Oh, terrible things happened. Let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, you know, you know, people responded to. Uh, so I, I remember I was uh, meeting some new folks uh, that were uh, these German people, right before I was leaving Berlin because they had actually uh, made it the capital again, which meant that all of the U S military had to leave. Uh, and we made some new friends downtown and they were like, well, where are you from? And I was like, well, I'm from this little town called Roswell, but I was born in, and they went Roswell X files. <laughs> and I was like, I had no idea what they were talking about because <laughs> I only had armed forces network, which mm-hmm. were, ran about a, about a year behind all of the, the the shows as they were coming out live. But Berlin, you know, they had already picked up all of the shows, translated them, and, like, they, they were Obsessed. ahead of us. Yeah. So, like, so they already knew. And so, like, literally, I had no idea that while I'd been in the year and the year and a half that I'd been in Berlin, that my hometown had turned into a little weird celebrity city. That's awesome. And when I came wow. back, yeah, I, I came back. The entire town had gone UFO crazy. They had like uh, uh, the weird, they put alien eyes on the lampposts and they <laughs> built a McDonald's that's shaped like a, yeah. <laughs> like a UFO. And, and like, they're just, they're obsessed with, with trying to make that happen. And so much to the point that I was the, uh, festival, the UFO festival director in 2003. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that's a whole other awesome. stuff. Uh, but that's just, that's just crazy that uh, the Hangar 18 connection there. Cause I remember, like as a kid making a mental note of, Oh, that's, that's this town. They're talking about, they're talking about Walker <laughs> Air Force. Like, there's nothing here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was weird. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's all. That's, that's my anecdote. <laughs> the other story credit goes to Thomas C. Chapman, uh, whose last name is reused for one of the characters in this film. Um, he has a story credit on Hangar 18. He has writing credits on 22 episodes of Beyond Belief Fact or Fiction. Uh, the music here came from Bob Summers, who was a composer before this on In Search of Noah's Ark, Guiana Cult of the Damned, which got a mini-sode this season, and Hangar 18 and Earthbound. He also has a single musical credit on The Simpsons for performing Bart's trumpet solos <laughs> in season 25, episode 6, The Kid's Alright. Okay. I don't, I don't know if I've seen that one. Cinematographer Paul Hip. He has mostly porn credits until he DP'd former Patreon pick The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, which, if I recall correctly, that film had three DPs over a six-day shoot. 
Uh, and they also, reused the, the Boogans uh, uh, monster too. Like that's they, they brought that back. It's perfect. But, uh, <laughs> he also lights Hangar 18 and Earthbound for Conway. Editor Michael Spence previously cut Hangar 18 and Earthbound for Conway, and later he edits Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Zapped again. Not mm. Zapped, but Zapped again. Rebecca Balding played Trish Michaels here. I don't know if any of these characters got last names in the film, but they all get them in the credits. Uh, Rebecca Balding, uh, director Conway was enamored by her audition and remarked to a producer that he would gladly marry her. A week into production, she supposedly proposed to him on set, and they were married a month later while they were still shooting the film. That's That feels a little weird. You just know those kids are still together. Well, they remained together until her death of cancer just a few months ago in July of this year. So that worked. Wow. That's, so, right. that's so great. That yeah. makes me so happy. The weirdest ones <laughs> stick. We saw her big screen debut in our Minnesota review of The Silent Scream earlier this year. She was also the estranged daughter of Jimmy the Eraser Kendall in MacGyver episode Back from the Dead, one of the episodes, Coincidence of Coincidences, directed by her husband. <laughs> uh, she also has a recurring role as Elise Rothman, editor-in-chief of The Bay Mirror on Charmed, which Conway served as executive producer for. Fred McCarran played Mark Kinner. He was Richie in Xanadu. Probably one of the people that worked with Michael Beck painting the album covers. Uh, he's Robert Karras in The Star Chamber. He was Kurt Russell's character of Rudy Russo in a 1984 used cars TV movie. And his final credit was appearing as a detective on The Golden Girls. Anne-Marie Martin played Jessica Ford. I have found conflicting reports that the nudity requirements on set were sprung on the cast or that she had agreed to do them. Either way, she did not agree when the time came to shoot them. Uh, Trish actress Rebecca Balding was willing to do the scenes on the condition that the set was closed to most of the crew during filming. We've seen Anne-Marie Martin so far as a couple of Wendy's, specifically Wendy from Prom Night and Wendy from Savage Harvest. She's back later this season as Darcy Esmont in Halloween 2, but her biggest credits are as Gwen Davies in Nearly 300 Days of Our Lives and Dory Durow in 41 episodes of Sledgehammer. Jeff Harlan played Roger Lowry. This was his first film. His second was Paul Schrader's Autofocus in 2002, so that's a gap uh, with uh, Greg Kinnear and Willem Dafoe. That's a, that's a fun movie, though. John Crawford played Brian Deering. This was his final film, but he lived another 30-ish years, so I'm not sure why he stopped here. Uh, I guess you can't you can't improve on this. I'm just saying everybody rolling in that book of the money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just, they just took some time off. <laughs> <laughs> we just had him as the creepy stepfather of Melanie Griffith's Deli Grasner in Night Moves. We mentioned there that he is not related to Joan Crawford, but they did star together in 1965's I Saw What You Did, not to be confused with I Know What You Did Last Summer, which it would never be confused for. <laughs> He's also in The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno, The Swiss Family Robinson, and Dirty Harry sequel The Enforcer. Med Flory played Dan Ostroff. He was Warzuski in the original Nutty Professor. He's Father Matthew, a priest on Lassie, and last season he was Sheriff Denton in The Hearse. John Lormer played Blanchard. He had a recurring medical examiner role as Dr. Oberon on Perry Mason. After the Boogans, we'll see him as Nathan Grantham, the miserly father of Bedelia in the Father's Day segment of Stephen King's Creep Show next season. Hmm. So Where's he's, my cake? That's him. Where's my cake? Where's my cake? Yes. Peggy Stewart played Victoria Tusker. She has credits dating back to the 30s, lots of westerns. She was also a lady patient in our Minnesota review of Beyond Evil this season. More recently, she played the mother of Sherian Rich on The Riches. Sherian is the deceased 
mother character whose identity is assumed by Minnie Driver. I haven't seen the whole series, but I assume they run into problems when they meet her mother. Unless mm -hmm. it's played like one of those standard dementia scenes where it's like, I don't recognize you, but you say you're my daughter, so nice to meet you. Uh, one of her latest credits was as the grandmother of Pam Beasley on The Office. That's the woman who worked at the newspaper, was also Pam Beasley's grandmother. Scott Wilkinson played Deputy Greenwalt. He was a flight activity officer in Hangar 18 and a mailman in Harry's War before this. He played an East German in MacGyver episode The Eraser. He also played the father of Rose McGowan's character in a single episode of Charmed. Now, does Carl know that you guys have done a MacGyver con uh, podcast before? I don't know. Did you, you know just... that? Uh, I feel like once i know actually i feel like when i came to, to see you guys last time i believe that was something you and i actually talked about okay. <laughs> yeah. like, I, I feel like if people don't know that it's weird how much you guys bring up I like, episodes of macgyver i actually like that and i like sometimes to just bring it up and have people be like why the fuck are they pretending like this random like if we i think we did it in our continental divide review where i was like Oh, and Bill Henderson was, of course, the gas station attendant who sold MacGyver a tire at the beginning of right. birthday. And it's like, why the fuck do they know the name of the episode? That's and, so weird. But also, why why would anybody care yeah. about that character? Yeah, but he's he actually he he, he leaves an impression in okay. that episode. All right. I was gonna say before you before you explaining that to me, you probably should explain that to your audience. Stuff. No, I think it, I think it's fine. No, uh, me and Richard watched the entire MacGyver series, all all seven seasons of. Of it and a little bit of the reboot but we had to give up on that and all the movies and and all the tv movies and yeah. we've reviewed each episode one at a time on our on our podcast phoenix foundation if you want to look for that and for some reason after they completed that i agreed to do a different podcast yeah with you. Um, marcia dangerfield plays martha chapman who crashes the car in the ditch she was credited as gold rush woman in our previous james l conway project earthbound she comes back after this as Virginia in Footloose and later Liquor Store Lady in SLC Punk. She's the mayor in Bats with Lou Diamond Phillips, and she's Grammar in Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo. That's his, like, Aaron Brockovich movie. That's slightly oh, right, less right, funny right. than Aaron right. Brockovich. <laughs> uh, but that's all I have for uh, cast and crew on this one. Carl, why don't you let us know uh, what you're up to right now and what people might be uh, expecting to see from you soon. Well, um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, we, we had a whole bunch of projects that were all kind of lined up and then, you know, quarantine and quarantine has been really interesting for a lot of, uh, independent, uh, uh filmmakers. Uh, but we did make, uh, the Western with, um, Nicholas Cage. It's going to be coming out later this year. Look for it towards the end of the quarter and for a theatrical release. It's called the old way It is Nick Cage's first Western. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I hadn't even yeah, considered that, uh, but yeah. I mean, it, it's it's really odd uh, that that's uh, <laughs> what it's going to be, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're really excited to, uh, to have that be coming out. Um, and uh, if anybody wanted to catch um, the Wave, which is uh, the film we had that uh, we released back in 2020, that's still on Amazon Prime. It's on uh, Peacock. Uh, there's a couple of different places to catch that, and it's got Justin Long and Donald Bazan, and yeah, it's a really good time. Yeah, it's you, it's a really wonderful yeah. film, and I I just love like the effects work so well with with the mood and like the disorienting nature of the story and everything. I just I I really enjoyed it, and the and the end the way everything just sort of it all feeds into the whole story. It just works really really well. So, 
kudos i'm so glad i'm so glad you liked it yeah, yeah it's, it, it was a lot of fun it was you know it was one of those low budget indie efforts that we were like you know what let's take a big swing let's take as big a swing as we could take and uh we tried to do a whole lot that had never been done yeah uh but yeah well thank you so much for your time today we really appreciated having you and um i hope we can get you back sometime in the future for something maybe dead and buried maybe another one down the line we'll we'll keep in touch okay we'll do it all right thank you All so right, much thanks guys that was thanks a lot so of much. fun all right bye-bye nice. bye i think that's everything for the boogans if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram youtube or letterboxd where as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com we also have a discord you can join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord and if you're listening on youtube don't forget to subscribe what's that sound That's right, it's a new patron, Todd. As a $5 patron of the show, Todd now has access to 33 full-size 70s reviews and 40 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Carbon Copy, which IMDb describes like so. When a rich white corporate executive finds out that he has an illegitimate black son, things start falling apart for him at work, at home, and in his social circles. George Seagal and Denzel Washington star as father and son. We leave you now with a trailer for Carbon Copy. Walter Whitney had it all. A high society estate furnished with a high society spouse. Oh, you make me feel so used. A high society position thanks to a high society father-in-law. I've never seen a happily married executive that was worth a damn. He even had a lawyer who was just plain high. You better have a drag, you'll feel better. But with all of this, Walter Whitney still felt something was missing. And one day, something showed up. Hi, Daddy. Carbon copy. Stop following me. Isn't the son supposed to follow in his dad's footsteps? God will never forgive you for having a black child. How do you know, Vivian? Maybe you'll be pleased. Maybe God is black. Rub my head for good luck. I don't believe in superstitious myths. Oh, there's no myth about black people changing your luck. Well, you only met me yesterday, and already your luck has changed. What am I worth? How much have you got in your wallet? $68. You mean that's it? Carbon copy. A riches to rag story. It's a menace! Needs a tune-up! That proves... No, I'm not sharing a communal bathroom. It's unhygienic. When you're going down the toilet, getting there is all the fun. You want to play a game, you and your son, against me and my son. Three baskets win, we'll play for five dollars. Oh. I have to be the father of the only black kid who can't play basketball. I'm Jewish, my son is black, and my lawyer smokes pot. Don't tell me I'm not in trouble. You can teach me how to build a model airplane. I'll show you how to pick a lock. You take me to a chamber of commerce meeting, I take you to a third world liberation meeting. Why are you doing this to me, God? Carbon Copy, starring George Siegel, Susan St. James, Jack Warden, and introducing Denzel Washington. Carbon Copy, any resemblance between father and son is purely hysterical. <laughs>